0: We're in the book of Colossians, if you're just joining us, we've been working through this, and two weeks ago, I was on Colossians 3.18, and just a word to all the ladies, if you're here this morning, and you weren't here two weeks ago, please either read or listen to that message, because we got to balance it out here. Today, uh, the husbands get a dose of God's word aimed at them, but last time it was the ladies, so... We need to keep it fair and equal, um, and so please go back and review that if you would. Uh, we're in Colossians 3.19. There should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages, as always, at both exits or online, and the audio messages are now getting posted right after this service online, and so you can access them all there. Um, very simple verse this week to read. Very difficult verse this week for us guys to apply. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. A church bulletin read At the Ladies' Aid Society meeting, many interesting articles were raffled off. Every member brought something she no longer needed. Many members brought their husbands. (laughs) Well, there are probably a lot of wives who uh, would be quite happy to make a little profit raffling off their husbands. In fact, some of them might even pay you to take them off their hands. But no marriage starts there, does it? We all start our marriages with high expectations and high hopes, and somewhere not too far along, there seems to be a fork in the road. And from that point, marriages either grow better or bitter. Either a husband and wife, through the years, are growing closer and developing a deeper relationship and love for each other, Or, as I've often experienced in counsel with Christian couples, they're growing more distant because almost daily resentment and anger are building a wall brick by brick between them. Now, as we've seen, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul begins to show how a relationship with God should impact our relationships with one another. And so all of chapter 3 verse 12 and following down through chapter 4 verse 1 are built on the start of chapter 3 where he tells us that we've been raised up with Christ. We should be seeking those things above and so on. Um, But in chapter 3 verse 12 he mentions that we've been chosen Uh, Of God, and he says, therefore, we should be compassionate and kind and humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, and forgiving toward one another, that love should be the supreme virtue, and that the peace of Christ and the love of Christ should bind us all together in the one body of Christ. And then, uh, beginning at verse 18, he applies that first to wives and now to husbands, Uh, next time we'll see to children and to parents, then to slaves and masters, and shows how those relationships should play out, not only in the church, but in these closer um, personal ties that we have with one another in the home. And uh, here in our Text Paul is showing us how husbands are to live out their faith toward their wives. Now, I've seen this so many times. Guys keep a good front up at church. Oh, happy family, everything's fine. But on the home front, it's a totally different story. And when it comes out, I find out that they're angry, they're bitter, they attack their wives. It's a whole different thing. And so what I'm saying is, guys, it's easy to fake it at church, but God knows our hearts. And we have to live this stuff. The Christian life is to be lived in the, on the heart level before God. And our homes are the real laboratory where that should happen. That's why in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, qualifications for leading in the church are uh, a good home life. That's the test. And so here, Paul gives this directive to husbands. It's striking that he does it in such an economy of words. Just one short sentence is his advice to husbands. I think maybe he's assuming that they read the little longer treatment over in Ephesians, because that was a circular letter. But here, Paul just says, simply, husbands must love their wives... And then he adds, and not be embittered against them. So there are two sides to this terse command. The positive, love your wife. And the negative, don't be embittered against them. Now, I want to say, no matter how mature you may be as a Christian man here this morning, you've got room to grow in this command. It's not one of those things you can check it off your list and say, well, I got that one down, let's move on to other commands. No, We've all got room to grow in this. And uh, my prayer this week has been that wherever you're at, God will use this message to help you grow so that our homes would be fragrant with the love of Jesus Christ um, for our wives and, as I'll explain next week, for our children. So let's look at the positive first. Husbands must love their wives. Now, After Paul's command in verse 18 to wives to be subject to their husbands, you would think that he would follow up in verse 19 and say, Husbands, rule over your wives in a wise manner as Christ rules over his church. But he doesn't do that. Now, many husbands read it that way. Um, If you were to say, what's your number one responsibility in your family? Oh, to be the head of my family, to be the head of my wife. Paul never Ever tells a husband to do that. In fact, nowhere in Scripture does it tell us to do that. It states that as a fact, but the commands are always uniformly husbands. Love your wives. Love your wives. And um, in that day, that was a radical command. Husbands were not noted in the Greek world, Roman world, for loving their wives. They were the despot of their family. But Paul gives this radical command to love our wives, and if you're a husband, or you're going to be a husband, (laughs) I think this should be on your mind and heart daily. How can I love my wife better? You know, how can I practically show her the love of Christ in a better way? And think about that often. Now, of course, to apply this, we need to understand what did Paul mean by love? Because if love is a strong feeling that just kind of sweeps over you like the flu, you know, you don't know where you got it and you don't know how to get rid of it, but now it's gone. And I've I've dealt with Christian couples that come in and they honestly say to me, well, we used to be in love, but, you know, the feelings are gone And so now we think the best thing is to divorce. Well, if that's what love is, yeah, you're kind of helpless, aren't you? You got it, it went away, You can't get it back, and there's not much you can do. Um, And these couples often that tell me that, they're so angry and bitter, they're hurling accusations at each other, you know, Um, but they don't want to work at rekindling their love. Now, you should know this definition because I've used it twice in recent messages. I used it in Colossians um, 3.12, I believe, and I used it up in uh, 3.14, put on love. Biblical love is not primarily a feeling, but rather biblical love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment, that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. And I won't go into where I derive that from, but Ephesians 5.25, John 13, where Jesus says, You're to love one another even as I have loved you. How did he love us? He laid down his life on the cross. It's self-sacrificing. He cared for us, and he is seeking our highest good. Um, And biblical love results in strong feelings, but feelings aren't the basis of love. Rather, commitment is the basis of love, as I'll mention more in a moment. See, romantic love focuses on how I feel. Oh, you know, I feel the earth move under my feet, the sky tumbling down, and it's just, you know, magic and all of that. And that's romantic love, but biblical love can be willed. And it's focused not on how I feel, but on how the other person is doing. And it's seen more in actions than in feelings. And its aim is always, as I say, the highest good of the one loved. So to obey this command, then, I need to understand that the main way I love my wife is by being committed to sacrifice myself in order to seek her highest good. So let's explore that. There are three parts of this. First, the main component in biblical love is commitment. It's always commitment. You can't command a feeling, but you can command a commitment. Um, Now, in our day, the way it works is we fall in love, and then we marry our lovers. But you need to understand, in Paul's day, most marriages were arranged by parents, And so, Paul is not saying that love is the basis for marriage, but he's saying that marriage is the basis for love. I remember in seminary, I had a a classmate uh, from India, and uh, his marriage was arranged. His parents and his wife's parents got them together. He had a veto power. He looked at her and went, yeah, yeah, she's fine. But then they got married, and uh, I think they're still married. Uh, Just had a 40th reunion class thing, and I saw his name, and looked him up in the directory, and same wife, and they're doing okay. So what Paul is saying is, love the wife you're married to, and it applies to every Christian husband. Now, there's good news and bad news in that commandment. Uh, The good news is that even if the feelings of love have died out, they can be rekindled, So the excuse, well, I just don't love her anymore, isn't valid. Paul would say, well, get to work. Start working on it. And, you know, the little fact, faith, feeling thing in the four law booklet, that's really true. That when we obey God's fact, the truth, the feelings are the caboose that follow. But you can't run the train by the caboose, by the feelings. And so... um, Paul doesn't say here, well, you know, if both of you just get the vibes when you see each other and, uh, you know, you're like the ads on TV where you fall into one another's arms or something, uh, then, you know, you've got a good marriage. No, he says, learn what love is and do it. Obey it. And if you obey, the feelings will be rekindled. So that's the good news. There's hope even for the most desperate situations, Now, the bad news, or maybe I should say the difficult news, is this. Loving your wife becomes a matter of obedience to God. And you're responsible for that. And so if you say, well, there's no love in my marriage as a guy, guess where the responsibility lies? It's on you. You're responsible to make sure your marriage is a loving marriage. And you say, well, if you only knew... How this woman treats me. Love your wife. (laughs) Well, but, you know, if you had to live with her every day, you know what the book of Proverbs says about living with a contentious woman. Love your wife. But, you know, I do everything for her and she doesn't do anything for me except nag me. Love your wife. But. See, what Paul is doing is yanking all the the rug of all the excuses out from under us and saying, don't give me all the excuses, love your wife. That's your responsibility. And if I blame my wife for the problems in my marriage, and many guys do, Christ puts it back on me. Think about it. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Has the church always been a beautiful, wonderful wife for Christ? I think not. I think not. Counting yours truly. Sometimes I've given my divine husband a lot of grief. And so have you. And yet he loves us, doesn't he? That's the whole hope of the Christian life. That his love is forever It is unchanging. It is, uh, you know, there for us at all times. And Paul is saying, that's how, guys, you have to love your wife. When he was in his late 50s, Dr. Robertson McQuilkin's wife, Muriel, was diagnosed with um, early onset Alzheimer's. Began to notice it just with memory things and strange things she would do or say. He was, at the time, the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. He had served there for 22 years, and for several years, he tried to juggle the demands of taking care of his wife as she grew more and more needy, and his demands at the seminary. And finally, he realized he couldn't do it any longer. And many of his friends just encouraged him to put her in a care facility, You know, she's not capable of really understanding what's going on. They can care for her. But he had been in those facilities, as most of you have been, and he thought, I can't bear putting my beloved wife there. And so in an article in Christianity Today back in 2004 called Living by Vows, he shared some of what I'm going to quote here and... uh, we had the privilege of hearing him down at Prescott Pines a few years ago as well. But he said this. When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part, skipping down in the article, he said this was no grim duty To which I was stoically resigned, however, it was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now, it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. Then later in the article, he commented, I have been startled by the response to the announcement of my resignation. Husbands and wives, renew." marriage vows. Pastors tell the story to their congregations, as I'm doing now. It was a mystery to me until a distinguished oncologist who lives constantly with dying people told me, almost all women stand by their men. Very few men stand by their women. Perhaps people sensed this contemporary tragedy and somehow were helped by a simple choice, I considered the only option. It's all more than keeping promises and being fair, however, as I watch her brave descent into oblivion. Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is, the wife I always loved. I also see fresh manifestations of God's love, the the God I long to love. More fully. So if you're not committed, you're not loving. And if you're not loving, you're not being obedient. The main component in love is commitment to your wife as long as you both shall live, no matter how difficult that may be. Then the main action in biblical love is self sacrifice. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul, as you know, says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, and here's how he loved her, and gave himself up for her. So biblical love means sacrificing yourself for your wife. It means dying to yourself and living for her highest good, even as Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you might have eternal life as a free gift. Now, all of us can sit here and think, sure, I'd, I'd sacrifice myself. If some rapist was attacking my wife, I'd lay down my life for her. Probably, guys, realistically, we'll never have to do that. I mean, I hope we would do it if we had to, but probably never. Here's where the rubber meets the road— daily saying no to my selfishness in order to serve my wife and meet her needs. (laughs) Back in, I think it was 1989, I was going to preach on this text uh, the next Sunday. And that night, uh, one night of that week, I had my message all prepared, and I climbed into bed and was cozying up with a good book. And Marla was getting in the shower, and she said to me, "Um, if the clothes in the dryer, if the dryer stops before I get out of the shower, would you mind uh, taking the clothes out of the dryer? And I thought, yeah, I mind. I'm enjoying just getting into this book. But I said to her, yeah, I'll do that. I said, I need a good sermon illustration on sacrificial love for my wife. (laughs) But, you know, seriously... How can you sacrifice yourself daily for your wife? Maybe it's just stopping what you're doing and listening when she's talking. You ever notice yourself doing this as I do? I'm going through the mail, and she's talking to me. I just walked in the door. Yeah, 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 and I'm looking at the mail, and I'm not focused on her. I just need to stop and listen to her. Maybe she needs help with the kids, or the kitchen is chaos, and... You're sitting there reading the paper or watching sports on TV or whatever, and she needs your help, but she doesn't really want to ask. And you need to notice she needs help. She needs help, and you help her. And you don't give her a lecture on how if she'd just be more organized, she wouldn't get into these situations. You just help her cheerfully. That's another way to sacrifice yourself. Or maybe she'd just be encouraged, you know, she shares a need. If you just stopped and said, let's just pray. Let's just pray about this together. And you pray with her and you pray for her. Um, She always needs you to take the time to listen to her needs and understand her and be supportive and verbally assure you of her love. There's just so many ways you can stop being selfish And start being focused on her and and her needs. I read a story in Reader's Digest years ago about a wife who had been married to a coach for 34 years. And she knew that a game was top priority. And one day she was really frustrated and she burst out and said, Frank, I think you'd miss my funeral to go to a game. And he calmly replied, Roberta, whatever made you think I'd schedule a game on the day of your funeral? Or schedule your funeral on the day of a game. Uh, I think that guy needed some pointers on this text. Uh, So Jesus said in Luke 9.23, and this is basic for all Christians. If anyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, here's the qualification. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And the motivation, of course, for that great sacrifice we are to make for one another is the infinitely greater sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross when we were sinners, we were his enemies, and he died on the cross for us. So, the main component in love is commitment. Uh, The main action in love is self-sacrifice, and then thirdly, The main goal in biblical love is the godliness of the one you love. Love seeks the highest good of the one loved, and the highest good is what we sang in that last hymn, Oh, to be like thee, to be like Jesus, to be Christ-like, godly. And so a husband who loves his wife as Christ loves the church has his main desire for his wife that she would be growing into a woman of God. Now, maybe you say, yeah, I've been telling her she needs to be more godly. No, no, that's not how it's accomplished. You don't get this across by lectures. You get it through by your godly example. It's by example. Uh, Your wife sees you walking with the Lord. She sees you growing in love for Jesus. She sees you dealing with your own sin. And asking forgiveness of her when you wrong her, she sees you growing in the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness gentleness faithfulness gentle uh, faithfulness goodness self control. she sees you spending time in the word and in prayer and and as she does that, she thinks, "I want what he's got, I want what he's got so you you have to model it now. There are times, of course, when you have to give a gentle word of correction. I'm not saying there aren't. But that's not the primary mode of helping your wife grow in godliness. It's modeling for her these qualities of being like Jesus. And you can't impart to your wife or to your kids what you don't yourself practice. So my question, guys, is this. Are you setting a spiritual example in your home. Do you lead your family spiritually? By example? And then you ought to be leading your family in reading the Bible and praying. You know, years ago when my family was young, I was kind of overwhelmed by having a family devotional time. I just didn't know how to do it. And I had had Dr. Howard Hendricks in seminary, and he's one of the most energetic, creative men, you know, and all this, and good night. He would put on skits for his kids, and, you know, it was like a Bible lesson, and I thought, that's up there, and I'm down here. And then I had a godly older man in my church who put his arm on my, his hand on my shoulder one day, and he said, Steve, just read the Bible and pray with your family often. I thought, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. And so, Not every night, but I think we batted probably four out of seven. You know, some nights I had meetings I had to run off to and that. But probably four out of seven nights as a father of young kids, we would read the Bible and pray. And, um, you know, it wasn't perfect. And uh, it wasn't great, probably, but it's better than nothing. And I was communicating several things. The Bible is really important to us as a family. Prayer is really important for us as a family. And we always prayed for missions. And so I was trying to communicate lost people out there are really important for us as a family. Those three things. The Bible, prayer, missions. And then as a leader in the home, you need to pray for your wife, but pray with her too. When things come up, you know, just stop and can I pray with you? Boy, that means a lot. Um, as a leader, you need to establish commitment to the local church for your family. It shouldn't be your wife saying, come on, get out of bed, let's go to church. No, you should be the one leading the family toward church. So what I'm saying is seeking your wife's highest good means seeking her spiritual good. And the way you do it is by just setting an example in godliness every day. So that's the positive side. All right, brace yourselves. We're going to the negative. Um, The positive, loving your wife means being committed to sacrifice yourself to see your highest good. But then Paul says, husbands must not be embittered toward their wives. Um, One scholar says, in classical Greek, this word regularly denotes the bitterness associated with disappointment, hate, and anger. And bitterness takes root when you focus on the shortcomings and sins of your mate. And behind it, invariably, is the disappointment of unmet expectations, and it always expresses itself in, in embittered anger, maybe silence, vindictiveness, being cross, being harsh, all of those kind of things. And Paul wouldn't have given this command, by the way, if he didn't assume that your wife will do something that could trigger bitterness in you. So Paul's a realist. He knows where we all live, that we all fall short, and so he's warning us as husbands, don't become embittered. Just want to explore three implications of that command. First of all, not being embittered means it implies that you're leading by love, And not by harsh authority. See, bitterness is the response of a leader who is threatened. And and so he tries to up the force. I'm going to lead by coercion. I'm going to show her I'm a strong leader. She's not going to get away with that. And he raises it up to try and counter maybe rebellion he sees or, or whatever it may be. And I think that Paul puts this in here because he's just told wives to be subject to their husbands and he knows that husbands are going to be tempted to uh, enforce that by their harsh authority. And so Paul is saying, husbands, that's the wrong, wrong thing. You don't lead by harsh authority. You lead in your home by loving your wife, by being gentle, by being considerate of her, And being the leader in the home never implies you have the right to be harsh or authoritarian or barking orders at your wife or, for that matter, your kids, or to trample on her feelings. Now, I will say this. I think there are probably times, maybe more in your marriage than mine, but times when a a Christian husband, he's talked it through with his wife. They have prayed together. They've sought God's word on a matter. And he finally has to assert authority by saying, you know, we're not going to go that way as a family. We're not going to do that. We're going to do this. And in those times, a wife needs to trust him and submit. So there are times as a leader, yes, you have to go against the will of those who are under your charge and say, before God as a leader, we're not going that way. We're going this way. That ought to be extremely rare unless you have a very rebellious wife. I have talked to Marla about it and said, can you think of a single time in 42 years of marriage when I've done that? And she said, no. We've always talked things through, prayed things through, looked into the word, and we've come out right together. So that should be really rare unless you're in a very difficult situation. But the point is you lead by love. You don't lead by harsh authority. Uh, The second aspect of this is not being embittered implies controlling your anger and dealing with your hurts in a godly way. Bitterness is is when settled anger uh, comes in, and that anger is because of disappointed expectations that you don't deal with rightly. You know, when somebody you love hurts you or disappoints you, and that's going to happen in in an intimate relationship like marriage, if you don't deal with it, then you begin to build up a reservoir of resentment. And that resentment turns into anger and bitterness and comes out sideways. And the more that reservoir grows, the more you end up blaming your mate for how unhappy you are in your marriage, see, and and it comes out in little things. You know, why you why'd you do that? And it's not a big deal. What's behind it is this reservoir of resentment that comes because she's not meeting some unstated, usually expectation that you have for her, and so. Both partners get increasingly angry, they're snapping at each other and fighting over these minor things that really aren't that big a deal, but you're embittered because you're disappointed. Now, the key to overcoming that, I believe, is to recognize, number one, my wife is not perfect, but number two, and more importantly, I am not perfect, you see, She's probably got her expectations, her list, that I haven't met, because we're both sinners in process, and so you have to set aside that perfectionistic thing. You know, I mean, maybe maybe you wanted a wife when you were dating who was a certain way, and you thought, she's it, she's perfect. One of the things I always ask couples in premarriage counseling is, list five faults of your mate, and You'd be surprised, I get them back, and they maybe be listed one, and that's pretty tentative and I'm thinking you guys are you're in la la land, you know, come on,
1: we've all got
0: far more faults than one, and you gotta come to a point where you just say, "You know, uh she's not perfect, and you gotta stop comparing her because it's easy to look at other women. And think, oh man, that woman seems like she is just a saint. Well, guess what? Live with her a while, you'll find out she's not either. You know, we're all in process. So you got to accept the wife you have and not try and pine away for the idealistic creature you thought you married. This is who God gave you. And you have to come to a point of saying, thank God for her. Look at her positive qualities. There have to be some. And uh, accept her as you would want her to accept you. And you might need to talk about these things as a couple. You know, here's an unfulfilled expectation. And you have to listen when she lists hers about you. Some of those may be things you can legitimately change and work on. Some of them may just be personality things and you just got to live with them that's just the way this person is and if you don't face those sometimes unstated expectations and deal with them in God's way then they're going to turn into angry demands and they're going to create distance in your relationship and those angry demands are always stemming from selfishness I want a wife who's that way and she's not that way And I deserve better and all of that. That's just selfish sinfulness. And so you can't do that. And when you have hurt feelings and misunderstandings, I believe every couple should be able to sit down and talk those through in kindness and love without yelling, without accusing, and learn to grow in understanding each other. Now, what often happens is this. A wife does something, and I'm I'm looking at it here from the husband's perspective. It works both ways. Husbands do things too. But a wife does something that hurts her husband. As guys, we're, we're often not really good at talking about our feelings. And so they, he's hurt, and they have an angry argument, and she goes off crying to the other room, and he turns up the volume on the game he's watching, and uh, they never talk about it. And then there's sort of a calm that settles in the home after a while. That's on edge, but, you know, things are peaceful. And he thinks, I don't want to ruffle her feathers now. You know, I mean, talk about that. you kidding me? She seems to be okay now. So they let it go. But it's building up this anger and resentment reservoir. And it's always easier, guys, not to talk about it. And I have made a point with Marla, and it's been years since I've had to do this, but when we have those kind of things, to say, look, we're going to talk. I mean, calm down. I'll calm down. But we're going to talk it through and find out what went wrong there and why did we have that misunderstanding so that we can grow through it, not grow apart because of it. You know, if you cut yourself you got a really nasty wound, it might hurt to clean it out. So you just let it go and a scab forms and then it gets infected. And then it's kind of messy to get it cleaned out. It's just better to clean it out. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And so you got to work it through. Now, I'm not saying you got to deal with every little hurt that happens in your marriage. A lot of things you just have to absorb. Okay, yeah, yeah, that wasn't perfect. Uh, oh, well, she's not perfect. I'm not either. And and you just absorb it and move on. So I'm not saying every little thing you bring up and have this big conference on. No, that's too intense. But if it's causing distance and it's maybe repeated, then you've got to talk about these things. You've got to sit down and grow in an understanding. And the way I do that, first of all, I have to confess my own sin to the Lord. And if I've wronged Marla, to her. And then I need to control my anger, and we need to sit down, and we need to talk. And if the the volume's ramping up as a husband, I just need to say, okay, okay, I understand you're upset, but I just want to talk. I, I want to understand you. And you try and work it through in a calm, godly manner. Remember, guys, she is part of your body. Paul uses that analogy in, in Ephesians 5. Just as we're members of Christ's body, so your wife is part of your body. And he says, you nourish and cherish it. You know, if I hit my thumb with a hammer, oh, you stupid thumb, I'm going to cut you off. You know, no. I go, oh, you know, get the ice, make it feel better. And that's how I should do. If my wife is hurt, I'm hurt. And, and we need to make it feel better. So you work it through. So not being embittered implies then first of all you lead by love not by harsh authority secondly it implies controlling your anger and dealing with your hurts in a godly way so you don't build up this reservoir of resentment and then thirdly not being embittered implies setting a positive emotional climate in your home you know bitterness is an emotion isn't it you've met bitter people and and it's an emotion and emotions are at the heart of relationships, aren't they? Intimacy means I feel close to my wife. And bitterness means I, ugh, I'm i angry, I feel distant from my wife. And as a husband, if I allow myself to be, feel moody and depressed and angry and all of that, I'm poisoning the climate in my home. And a lot of husbands, you know, they go around and they're grumpy and they're angry. And then the family reflects that back to them and they, they can't understand. Why is my family so grumpy and angry? Guess what? I, I, they're just reflecting the climate that I set. And so I think as a husband, I have to set a climate in my home of faith in the Lord, of thankfulness for the Lord's goodness to us as a family, of joy for his blessings, of the peace of Christ that rules in my heart. I've got to do those things in my home when there are conflicts. And, you know, if if I'm often grumpy and critical and negative and attacking, how can I expect my family to be loving and kind and sweet and joyful back toward me? I have to set the climate. I have to do that and turn it around and... I've had to tell myself in the past, you know, I don't have the luxury to go around being depressed and being angry and moody. Um, I just don't have that, that option. I need to be cheerful in the Lord. I need to, to help my family see how good God is to us through me so that they focus on him as well. And if I want my wife and kids to be full of joy in the Lord, then I've got to lead the way by my example. Now, how that works is this. When you're going home, get ready. You're going to be on. The minute you walk in the door, you're on. And if you walk in the door and slam it and start snarling at the family, guess what? You've just poisoned the climate. But you're on. It's your ministry. And so before you get home, just pray, Lord, Help me to minister to my wife and kids. Maybe you've had a rough day. Okay. You can share that later with them and ask for their prayers. But you walk in and you say, it is so good to see you guys. Wow. You know, great to great to see you. I'm so grateful God gave you to me as a wife and you as kids. And you set a positive climate in your family so that your kids and your wife think, Home is the best place in the whole world to be because there I find love and I find acceptance and the spirit of Christ is there. And so, guys, if you get anything out of this message, get this. The responsibility for your marriage growing better and not bitter is on you. It's on you. So take that responsibility and run with it. A young man who was recently married came to Harry Ironside. He was a very well-known Bible teacher in a previous generation. And he said, Brother Ironside, I want your help. I'm in an awful state. I'm drifting into idolatry. And Ironside asked, well, what's the trouble? He said, well, I'm afraid that I'm putting my wife on too high a plane. I love her too much, and, and I'm displeasing the Lord. Ironside asked, are you indeed... He said, do you love her more than Christ loved the church? Well, no, I don't think I do. Well, Ironside said, that's the limit. For we read, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so, guys, until we reach that limit, we've got work to do. And Paul says, very simply, in a way that's easy to remember, husbands, Love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Let's pray. Dear Father, we need your grace in this. We're all selfish by nature. I know a lot of guys struggle with anger and take it out in their homes. And I pray, Lord, by your grace, the fruit of the Spirit would be evident in our home lives. That Christ would be the head of our homes, that our children would rise up to say, thank God for a loving father. And Lord, we're all short of that standard. We're all imperfect. And when we blow it, I pray you would help us to have the humility to ask forgiveness of you and of our wives, of our children. And Lord, we want our homes to be a testimony to the grace of Christ. We thank you for your great sacrifice for us. And I pray that that would motivate us daily to demonstrate that same grace and love to our families. In Jesus' name, amen.